My name's Tracy Smith. I was born and raised in Kalamazoo, Michigan. In 1998, I attended the South by Southwest Film Festival in Austin, Texas. And at a promotional side event at a local coffee house, I saw a showcase featuring some of the most talented performance poets in the country. Afterwards, I returned home and founded the Kalamazoo Poetry Slam. Now, almost 25 years later, for the sake of history, for the sake of nostalgia, and for some of the incredibly talented people we've lost along the way, I give you, dear listener, the Keizu Poetry Slamcast. This is Slam Later, like the poems are like, you dirty fucking whore. But this is one of the good ones from the beginning. My ears reach in the suburban noise of night. There's a question asked in one naked moment that never I am the Smith. I am the poet. I am the Industrial Revolution. No longer bright as fireflies. And the place of finding how wonderful we are, we form the sweet nature of the future and the reasons that we sing. I know, you know, I can feel the, the tension in here, and uh, it's it's kind of cool. I really dig it, and I've been on I've been on seven different poetry slam teams, and I've done pretty well in my time. And uh, my my little bit of advice to all the people that, people that are slamming tonight, you know, after all these years, what I can offer you is just don't suck when you come up on stage. <laughs> um, anyway, here's a poem, not in the book that I'm selling, by the way which uh, I don't know, I probably should be plugging myself and trying to sell shit, but uh, I don't really care about that. Please, please buy my stuff. It is times like this when I feel the old blood inside stirring, heating the new Mexican, Mexicano, Chicano. I am listening to Los Lobos, guitarron and accordion spinning out generations of dignified grief, the soothing and sharpening of sorrow by tequila's wet kiss. Listening to the thrum, pop, and cry of congas, Chepito talking bells, and the crack, boom, splash of timbales, Santana's guitar, wailing blue, fire. And I think about cutting off these long dreads and slicking back whatever is left to look more like my folks want me to, like my Uncle Joe, the drunken barroom brawler, or like my father, the 60-hour-a-week man, the never-miss-a-beat man, the... Ladies' man on weekends, much to my mother's sorrow. And I think of my Uncle Jesse, a huge man, full of laughter, bow hunter, and the best dancer in the family. And something inside churns, shifts, slow moving, like the juice inside the maguey. And I think of my mother raising her four younger brothers, following the crops from Michigan to Southern California to Texas and back again. And I think of my grandmother, Bruja curandera, or both, casting spells and prayers by candlelight, pulling three-year-old me out of near-lethal fever that had baffled every doctor in the hospital. And I think of my grandfather at age 14 in the coal mines of West Texas, pitting 14-year-old muscle and bone and tendon and pickaxe against sledgehammer and bowie knife-wielding bullies and winning. And a deeper thing takes hold of what I am and being who I am. There is no part that is not touched, burned, stroked, clutched by the heat and laughter, by the songs and tears, by all the lives of wildness and self-sacrifice, 
by all the lives of muscle and wisdom and gamble it took to come here. The old blood and songs mixing with, igniting the new, incandescent, unmistakably bladed and branded, simmered and shimmering. Mexican, Mexicano, Chicano. Thank you very much. Okay, here we go. Our sacrificial poet this evening. We make our features work their asses off here, by the way. So you should, you know, buy this guy's book. We'll get him up here in the open mic. We're going to get him up here for sacrificial. We're going to have him be a judge, and then he's going to, like, rock your world after the slam. Mr. Danny Solis. Are you ready? You did agree to do this sacrificial thing, didn't you? <laughs> What? <laughs> I'm doing it. Come up here, brother, and read your poem. Do you mind if I start back here? Oh, I'm sorry. It's tradition. I, I just, I didn't even, I... Pfft. Yeah. Shit. 
out of a trap. One more breath. One more moment. One more chance. That was. That was us. Okay. There's a little story I want to tell you guys just briefly. Shh. It's story time. It's story time. In the spring, and some of you have heard this story because I tell it like the ancient mariner. I just tell it over and over again to whoever will listen and most people who won't. In the spring of 1998, I lost my job, my poetry show, and the woman I was in love with all in the space of two weeks. And I was feeling, as I recall, I was feeling pretty shitty about it. And I went to visit some friends of mine in Austin, Texas to ask them some advice on what I should do with my pathetic life. And that's where my life and Poetry Slam met. And it was like divine inspiration. And the thing, this is the part of the story I, I don't think I've ever told, the thing that gave that inspiration focus and context and direction was a brief conversation that I had with Danny Solis. This guy, when he talks about slam poetry, nine times out of 10, he's not gonna talk about judges and scores and time penalties. He's gonna use words like honor and discipline and art. And he is in a small way, largely responsible for us being here tonight to share poetry with one another. And the best way I can think of thanking him is to give him this stage in your ears. Danny Solis. Thank you. Thanks very much. That's um, it was very lovely. Which mic sounds better, this one, or this one, or do they sound the same? Okay. Well, you know, I did that Coyote poem, and uh, that was the poem I was going to open my set with. So now I got to do something different. But before I do, I would please like for all of you to give another round of applause to the people that slammed tonight. And uh, I'm, I'm gonna, excellent. I'm gonna talk some about this Kalamazoo scene and team and my opinions, but I'm also gonna do some poetry, mostly poetry, and I'll do some shit talking in between. And, 
I'm going to talk about the moose, too, because there's a, a moose head on the wall in the bar in Albuquerque where we slam. And, uh, and I host, and I always threaten to put the moose head on at some point in the night just to get the audience going. And uh, so would almost everyone, except for the owners of the bar, I'm sure. Um, I've done this poem with the curse words taken out for kids a lot of times, and they always want to know, did all that stuff really happen? Yes, it all, it's all in there. It's all true. The day twisted inside its 24-hour skin on its afternoon-evening bones like a lost word or a fragmented memory must, in its incompleteness, remind itself of its own stray dog, stone and shoe existence, happening in an odd jittery dance, hopping on a stench-dappled corner, random comment of a mad derelict making your brief walk for a coffee or a movie, another consideration of the multiple fucked-up unfolding of this 50-cent city drama, concrete comedy, sack of bones and blood and breath, whuffing itself along and jagged shuffle just out of your view, the grimy hand outstretched for coin. The fingers you don't want to touch. And it's there, right there. That little song that says, what of that one? What storybook left out in the rain? The colors blur, the pages stick together, swollen and steaming in the sun. It was, it was. Sing songs a bum on a balcony, breaking the starched afternoon, afternoon boredom with his booze breath bellowing, brandishing his bottle like a glassy, glinting banner. And the normal people in the shops, on the buses, seem less real, more remote, methodically chopping off pieces of themselves according to an agreed-upon plan. Four walls, three meals, two weeks vacation, disposable income, entertainment. And I know enough of that bargained ballad that sighs and chases its tail. And I was too slow to stop the fight, the pipe fight in the hallway. Kid with his face split open, blood splattered everywhere. And this is just one day, writhing on its rack of sky and sunlight, my bones cracking like ice cubes popping out of their tray in this crazed arena as I dodge the mire of bitterness. You can toss me in the lake, but you can't make me drink. And my girlfriend says, I just want to know where I'm going with my life. And she's going where this whole parade is headed. Lemmings, an apt metaphor, though they are less noisy and self-involved than all of us. And the evening shakes like a great wet bear spraying stars into the gloaming blue and the sun reaches a finger in an improbable curve through the clouds and over the hip of nighttime and there in the day's departing spotlight a dragonfly vibrating drinking up enough heat and light to last till dawn wings shimmer and flick he has eyes and guts and breath and legs his heart pounding 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 tiny engine better than the ocean in his blue black armor and if i can draw breath in the sun's next gaudy big thigh arrival i will scan the air for him tomorrow When I first started slamming, it was in Boston. And um, if you know about slam, you know that Boston is a very um, contentious slam scene. 
I mean, you, they'll fuck your shit up in Boston. And uh, it was fun. It was fun for me. But there's also been a lot of talk about a certain style of slam, like slam is this or slam is that. I mean, slam can be whatever. Thanks for coming, y'all. Slam can be whatever you want it to be, you know, I think. And it's up to the artist to define what slam is and to lead the audience, not to follow the audience. But anyway, blah, blah, blah. Um, I used to slam with this poem. I don't anymore. I slammed with it while I was in Boston, and I never lost when I slammed with this poem. So you just figure out for yourself if it's really a slam poem or not. In a month surrounded by the wrought iron fence of winter, when spirits are unwatchful and not easily summoned, we will sit in a house of cold hallways and warm rooms. And in the half-lit gas-heated closeness, we shall drink red wine, the taste of spice and dust and memory, nimbus of talk and intoxication pushing back winter's chill fingers. And in this liquor and conversation conjured space within a space, shoes slip off, sweaters slide from shoulders, we reveal scars. Their translations nearing perfection only when spoken by the interpreter, clad only in a howl, in a towel, standing before the heater, wet hair dripping onto skin that shivers at the naked blade of clear remembrance and uncluttered conveyance. The wine is gone. A bottle of coffee liqueur remains. The circle of heat and talk shrinks to the bed's rectangle. Winter's wind shakes the windows like a great gray bear. A draft more supple than a cat icily slinks the hallway, slips under the door, breaks wave-like upon the bed island where under blankets, limbs and words flutter and tangle. Scars are kissed. Sticky mouths seek and suck to each other, powerful and precise as swans landing on water. Then, no words. Cats race in the hallway. The bear shakes harder. Derelict clouds hurry by with loads of snow. And the stars whiten fiercely with winter and hold their places. Thank you. Wow, instead, instead of saying clad only in a towel, I said clad only in a howl. That was kind of cool. I think, you know, I'm going to have to use that. But you can use it too if you want. You just take it and start to do something with it. Thanks for staying, y'all. It feels kind of anticlimactic after the slam. It's like, okay, now there's this guy who's going to do stuff, you know. But, um, you know, I have to say, y'all are really lucky to have the kind of team that you had represent you last year at the Nationals. And, uh, I mean, because there are teams, you know, like Bar 13 with all these superstar motherfuckers and shit, you know, with the, who are on HBO and going to Europe and blah, blah, blah. But um, the, um, the Kalamazoo team really won my heart with its, its, um, its spirit and uh, teamwork. And uh, in my mind, it was a better team than some of the teams that they lost to. So 
Yeah, you applaud for that. That's the kind of shit you applaud for. So anyway, I'm gonna do, pull one out of the songbook here. See the fat man, Fat Albert, the fattest human on earth. Walking down the midway with Vicky to the clank roll and thunder of the giant ride machinery hidden behind stretched once bright now fading canvas. Lights, lock bars, cheap speakers blaring cheap pop hits, coupons, asphalt, and lines for rides like the Himalaya, Wild Mouse, Caterpillar, Tilt-A-Whirl, Bubble Bounce, presided over by road-weathered men tattooed slack with boredom, cigarettes dangling from indifferent lips, and Vicky says, let's go to the freak show. We go to the one where for a certain number of coupons, you get to view a variety of freaks. More freaks per dollar. What a bargain. I have forgotten most of what I saw in that shadowy tent that day, but I remember Fat Albert. Not black, like the cartoon Fat Albert. Surprisingly, not eating, just sitting, watching TV. The barker led the crowd from freak to freak to freak, giving the spiel, and each one did their little freak dance. Then it was Albert's turn. The barker talked about how many pounds of bacon and how many dozens of eggs and biscuits Albert had for breakfast. Then Albert gobbled Twinkies for the crowd. Then pushed the play button on a cheap cassette deck. Little Richard, Tinny Howlin', all Rudy, Tootie Fruity. And Albert began to swing his enormous gut from side to side. Bulbous, fat-filled pendulum pushing open his shirt's bottom button, exposing a fish-white triangle of skin. And while the crowd laughed, I looked into the eyes of this man, this fat Albert, and saw something less than hollow, like a negative space. His mind was somewhere else, dreaming of not even God knows what. Slim, beautiful women, a sun-filled road he had walked as a child. Porterhouse, rare, salad and stuffed baked potato. A Gilligan's Island rerun. The cool hands of his mother on his forehead, and he caught me looking and flashed silent anger. Get out of my eyes, you son of a bitch! And I did. I did. And then Vicky and I tumbled back out onto the blue skied autumn streaked midway, and later that night, me playing percussion with a reggae funk band, pounding the congas, guzzling Guinness stout, drinking faster than usual, drumming harder than usual. I could not drink or drum Fat Albert's eyes or the crowd laughter out of my head. Could not shake the thought that I was a part of a so-called civilization that lived off and laughed at and sucked on loneliness. And I played so hard my fingers split open like they hadn't in years. And I wrapped my bloody swollen digits around a fresh one, icy cold. Drained it in two pulls on my way to the dressing room where I burst in, grabbed our drummer David by his jacket, pulled him toward me and said, look, man, if I go crazy and start smashing shit and they come take me away, tell everybody it wasn't the Guinness. It wasn't the Guinness. It was the fat man. Thank you very much. Gonna gonna do one now, another one, another poem. Okay. This one is kind of um, kind of about remembering what joy is like, because sometimes I think we forget, and then it surprises us, and then it's really good. 
That's better than the poem. Okay, I'm skipping the poem. It was just then, walking through that cold, trash-strewn parking lot, talking nonsense. Goofy discourse on ramshackle, badly listing garage as new apartment. Rusty caved-in cabinets as new furniture. Abandoned, sagging jalopy as new family car. You spoke casually, mentioned Harry Parch and his legacy of percussion, cloud chamber bowls, diamond marimbas, and the spoils of war. The wind kicked chill. Frigid nuzzle buck, you stepped liquidly to, to my side, took my arm in both your hands, nestled a kiss on my surprised jaw. And something like a coal, like an ember, flared inside me, a small flame that had slept for a long, long time under ashes, awake again. I hardly recognized it. And then, unbidden, the memory arrived whole. 13-year-old me walking down McKinney Avenue on my way to Delia Ortiz's house. She and her sister and their mother lived in an apartment above the Dallas Tortilla factory. And there was a certain point in my walk when I could smell the corn steaming on the tortilla presses. Then around another corner, I could see the neon sign. Could smell the menudo. I could almost, I felt like I could almost smell Delia across the car exhaust over the concrete. And I felt so light, like maybe I could float the rest of the way up to the balcony where Delia and I would sit and listen to Al Green and kiss for hours, our 13-year-old mouths biting into that excruciating mystery thrill. And that was the feeling that day in that cold parking lot when you took my arm Something like that. Something I had forgotten till just then. Thank you. Thanks. Um, how much time do I have? As much as I want. Okay. Um, this poem, the next poem I'm going to do, um, it makes a lot of references to a poem by Langston Hughes. Um, the poem is Harlem. Sometimes it's known as a dream deferred. And because I have time and it's not a slam, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to recite the, the Langston Hughes poem. And um, it also makes reference to, um, well, it actually, there's a Coltrane song in there too, John Coltrane. So anyway, here's the poem by Langston Hughes, known as Harlem. What happens to a dream deferred? Does it? dry up like a raisin in the sun, or fester like a sore, then run? Does it crust and sugar over like a syrupy sweet, or does it stink like rotting meat? Does it sag like the heavy load, or does it explode? Please applaud for Langston Hughes. <laughs> Jumping Jesus. No, don't applaud, it'll fuck up my flow. 
Now, I always applaud Langston Hughes. Okay, now, now my poem, my sort of, uh, not a response, but an extrapolation on that poem. A love supreme, a love supreme, a love supreme, supreme, supreme. A dream deferred, a dream deferred, a dream deferred. Langston's words rolling through the bones of Coltrane's music in my mind every day. The TV flickers with a dream deferred exploding. L.A., city of modern-day Gamoran angels wrapped in wings of fear and fire. Smoke and danger billowing black into the blue California sky. Amidst the pillaging and random bullets, I see a large man sagging along with a heavy load of memory. He is older than me. Old enough to remember Martin and his dream toppled from the mountain, raped, knifed, and left on a trash heap. Old enough to remember Malcolm's public execution and those two dangerous Irish Catholic boys, Jack and Bobby, butchered by the business-as-usual CIA, our collective consciousness crested and sugared over with syrupy sweet lies. Old enough to remember Angela Davis in chains and J. Edgar Hoover in lingerie, old enough to remember Anita dragged through a pit of video slime by a cadre of good old boys with smiles like rotting meat, Clarence stinking with his 30 pieces of Supreme Court silver, old enough to remember Dallas policeman Daryl Kane, 357 Magnum, put to the head of 12-year-old Santos Rodriguez, trigger pulled the memory, a festering sore in the mind of Santos's 13-year-old brother who was forced to watch the dream, the dream, the dream drying up like the bludgeoned face of Emmett Till in the casket. And this man walks through the riot of blinding L.A. sunshine. His hands are empty of weapons or looted merchandise. His hands are as empty as his big breaking heart soon will be. As he walks, tears streaming down his face, he says, it's not right. It's not right. It's not right. And in the chaos and carnage of this moment of these last 500 years, reflected in the broken glass and written in the rising smoke, our collective heritage, undeniable and ubiquitous as Americans, we must be able to claim the grace and tenacity of Cesar Chavez, American, the bittersweet magnolia tragedy of Lady Day, American, the magic and visions of Black Elk, American, the courage and dignity of Barbara Jordan, American. But for now, the cities wait, a breath, a spark, a moment away from burning. And the fight still rages every day, every day, every day, every day I wake up and you give me another reason to commit an act that you'd consider treason. And that's because you have declared an open season on me and my brothers and a whole lot of others such as women. In all their rights, sexist violence roams this land in an evil blight. But we'll seize the day and take back the night. We're talking 50 million points of fucking fed up light. We'll never quit until we get this thing right. And my hero rises impossibly over my shoulder like a second sunrise, reminding me of the only gift we are ever truly given, of the only gift that is ever worth giving. A love supreme, a love supreme, a love supreme. Thanks, I was gonna do three more poems, if that's okay. Three more. Is that all right? Okay, okay. <laughs> Thank you. So good. Okay. Thank just looking for a little response. All right. Um, well, we'll see how you feel. They're, you know, they're not short ones. Um, sometimes I like to mix it up like that, but I don't, I don't know. I'm just doing what I feel like doing. 
The body remembers. The body remembers. The body remembers what the mind would choose to forget. The body pulled by a hidden hook of unforgetfulness into a meadow of the brain thick with memories, scattered like dead wood and blossoms, stones and thorns. The body swims the lake of the soul while the mind lurches, careens, chatters in the city of the intellect toward artificial destination. The lake ripples with the light of reflection, fingers heavy with the translation of wave crash, hot sun salt kisses, white red black clay cliffs into skin, into nerve, into blood, into bone, into a spin that pushes the mind from the comfortable couch of forgetting to the sudden chasm drop off of a memory, a falling backward into a lake that boils with remembered thrashing of two bodies in deep night's blue palm where every grunt and wallow, every nip and drool were perfection that spread through your hips up into your spine like smoke and flowers and whiskey. The shape and cadence of desire slipping from the cool murk of the subconscious, uncoiling like a sleek reptile from the mud of forgetfulness, rising toward the well-ordered light of conscience and logic, hunger bent on heat and blood, shattering the surface to claw the air of the brain, shaking like a mad black flower as the teeth and the breastbone and the soles of the feet remember joys and angers and lovers we can never call back. Like drunken, heartbroken, fallen angels remember dawn and moonlight and the Milky Way and the precise anger of the melancholy mechanic that set in motion breath and orbit, tentacle and wave, talon and magma and the indigo jungle of night that surrounds the one that listens, that listens, that listens. To the answering machine, tape loop reply to the question asked by the blood in the solitary heart. The solitary heart, trembling with little earthquakes, popping underneath the surface of the skin, curling with a fire that appears like a mad jazz in the neon ceilinged brain cafe till the guitars and the saxophones and the poems can't say it. And we discard them for hips and liquors and lips and needles and hands and tongues and eyes and mouths and corners of the night we never imagined, never wanted to dream those five hungry hounds, the senses devouring all. And as dawn casts us out into the scrubby light and hangs us again with the dull yoke of the day and the mind puts the problems on to boil, smiles and gathers secrets and waits and remembers the body remembers the body remembers the body who is in a relationship out there? Anybody in a relationship? A few people? All right. Okay, here's a relationship poem. It's kind of silly, but it's kind of serious. I hope you like it. And I let you drive home drunk after that clumsy 5 a.m. kiss. And I laid in bed cursing myself for being so selfish because I knew 
you had a boyfriend. And we had already talked about just staying friends. But mostly, I laid in bed cursing the wide world for its series of unflinching machinations that had brought me to this moment of nighttime. My arms not around you. My mouth as hungry as it's ever been for anything or anyone. My thirst like a slap as I thought again of my drunken lunge toward every bit of you. But that was a different night than the one I really want to talk about. <laughs> this other one was a Friday night and your boyfriend was out of town and we were both nervous, but we drank wine anyway, or maybe because of, and your dogs followed us out into the backyard where I built a fire. And I felt like this was some sort of mystical, romantical test. And I built it just the way my friend Shane had taught me, a one-match fire. And it actually lit with just one match. And I was quite relieved. And never mind about the possible metaphors here, too obvious, too cheesy. But I was proud of my little fire. And you rolled up a wheelbarrow full of more wood, and there was plenty of room in the pit left for more fire. And I thought, what if I'm being too timid? What if she's used to her boyfriend building a really big fire? And this little fire leaves her totally unimpressed and, in fact, a little disappointed. <laughs> so all of a sudden, I am trapped in my head in a fire-making competition with your boyfriend, who isn't even there, but still stands between us like a wall. And so I begin snapping cedar branches from a nearby woodpile and tossing them and the boards and the logs from the pit to the wheelbarrow into the pit, drinking more wine, trying to seem casual about everything. <laughs> but I am wondering about my place in the fire-making competition. And I am using all my pyrotechnique to make a huge, hot, yet contained blaze. And the thing is so big, the dogs withdraw. And you get nervous, not about us this time, but about the house possibly igniting. And you hop over a smoldering hay bale to rescue an old wooden owl that has burst into flames. And I stand and stoke and stir the fire with a seven-foot iron rod I found nearby. True story. Feeling like the king of campfires. And I am tempted to question your impression of my fantastic fire skills with pet name-laced questions like, hot enough for you, monkey lips. How about that fire, grasshopper wings? What do you think of my incredibly mind-blowing and obviously far, far superior to your boyfriend's fire-building and tending skills now? Chinchilla hips. But instead, we simply sit and drink more wine and share stories of our childhoods. You tell of the secret swamp and the sinking mattress raft. I tell of the Thanksgiving where my gang of cousins beat another gang of cousins with sticks. <laughs> and the fire growls and crackles and the fire pops and chortles and we laugh and drink more wine and share those stories and we are both still nervous.
Thank you very much. The kids always want to know, is the fire thing really a penis metaphor? No, I'm just kidding. They don't ask that. All right. I did this poem last night at Weeds in Chicago. Anybody ever been to Weeds in Chicago? If they, don't, if they don't like you at Weeds, they'll boo you off the stage. It's kind of like the Green Mill. And the bartender has a gun under the bar. And he's threatened bad poets with it, that, the gun before. But if they like you, they'll start, he'll start feeding you shots of tequila. And um, Patricia Smith was there one night. And she knows Sergio, the bartender. And uh, he was trying to get her to drink a shot of tequila. And she was like, Sergio, I don't want to drink any tequila. You know, and so he takes the gun out from under the bar and he puts it to his head. Like he pulls the fucking, takes the safety off and pulls the fucking hammer back. It's like a 38. And he says, he says, you got to drink that tequila or I'm going to kill myself. And so, <laughs> so she's like, all right, just fucking calm down. And she drinks a shot of tequila and then he shoots a hole in the ceiling. And she was like, what the? And he was like, I just wanted to show you I was serious. So I did, that's my little weed story, but I wasn't even there for that one. But I was there last night and I had a great time and I did this poem and now I'm gonna do it for you. Um, you've been a great audience, really. Thank you so much for sticking around. And um, thanks to everybody in Kalamazoo. I love Kalamazoo. And I do have a book for sale. See, I'm manipulating you. I tell you I love you so that you will do things for me. <laughs> it's a little too close to the truth. Okay, now the poem. I was searching the shadows for the bloodstains from the riots. Student-led anti-war demonstrations when Mexican-American guardsman bayoneted Chicano student, having traded obsidian blade and Toledo steel for oiled and honed army issue and fixed position point and thrust, and the blood blossomed from earth-brown skin. And I was tracking down those puddles so I could put my fingers into them like some kind of coagulated holy water blood pudding and maybe I could put in my thumb and pull out a heart Chimanahuac, city of the Aztecs heart of the one world beating like a gory jewel in the undulating copper sun of my dreams and I lost focus closed my eyes vertigo unfurling when a hand gripped my shoulder hard I opened my eyes and there he was in the dream flesh, Cesar Chavez, el mero mero del movimiento chicano. Pos, que diablos tienes vato? He asks me. And I think my dance card of demons is way too long to list. But before I can answer, he punches me in the gut, a beautiful right that knocks me on my ass and leaves me struggling for breath. He stands over me, radiating that terrible, sweet, saint's intensity, eyes, pools of onyx fire, glittering love and destruction. I thought you were nonviolent, I gasp. <laughs> you call that violence, he asks. Sincerely amused and appalled, the only violence here is your immense ignorance, pendejo. Dip your fingers into the dried up blood of students. What crap? Why not go for fresh blood? Dip your fingers into the blood of zapatistas dying in the jungles of Chiapas. Dip your fingers and hands into the shattered dreams of immigrants being hounded by the border patrol coyotes in La Migra. Dip your fingers, hands, arms 
into all the sangre Chicano being spilled by gangs, the cops, and clicas in the streets and Cajones of Dallas, Chicago, L.A., and Albuquerque. You think it stopped flowing just because the PBS special ended? Just because you quit thinking about it? Just because there was no one around to yell, Viva la raza! And wake your big ass up. He grabbed my face and shoved it into a mirror and said, That's violence. Every day you don't speak the language of your grandmothers and your grandmothers. Grandmothers, that's violence. And I knew he was right. And I turned to him, but he was gone. And in his place was Santos Rodriguez a wavering 12-year-old angel with half his head blown away by the Dallas police, and I trembled as he took my hand, and we took flight, rose into the air, and we flew backwards past the L.A. riots. Smoke and fire licked at us, and we rose, and we rose higher, higher. I tell you that I'm sorry for any offense I might have caused, man. I just got caught up in... In being a dumbass? I guess so. Why are you still doing this chicken George shit? I have no idea. Neither do I. It's beyond me. It's beyond me. You confused. I am a little confused. I know. But are we cool? Not really. <laughs> 